The Unadmiring by Anna Cora Mawit Ritchie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unadmiring Among social nuisances, defend us from those pitiable beings who, through some deficiency in their mental conformation, some lack of vital heat, of acute sensibility, of quick perception, are totally deprived of the faculty to appreciate and the power to admire. Show them a fine statue, and it is stone and marble, chiseled curiously, but conveying no idea, awakening no emotion. Exhibit an exquisite painting, the chef d'oeuvre of some grand old master. It is to them merely color upon a canvas, and a great surplus of darkish paint. Call them a fragrant exotic. It is a nice enough smelling thing, but the poor flower withered by contact with that uncongenial touch is quickly flung aside point out a living landscape replete with the highest forms of pastoral beauty verdant wood and flashing stream gently swelling hill and dimpling valley with a background of gorgeous sunset painting the horizon with purple and crimson and gold the landscape is to them but trees and water and the sun going down red enough to augur a hot day tomorrow these specimens of soil curtailed humanity seem to carry in their hands a disenchanting wand and at its waving leaf blossom and fruit fall from the tree of life and the bare, unsightly stalk is left behind. The beauty and poetry of all creation vanish, and hard, positive, unspiritual prose alone remains. You who are sensitive to sympathetic impression, to what Swedenborgians called spheres, avoid these apathetic beings as you would shun infection. Strange and sad to say, there is contagion in the lethargic atmosphere by which they are surrounded. Associate with them, and they insensibly steal away from you the power of appreciation and admiration which they themselves lack. Mr. Quincham goes with you to hear a world-renowned orator. As you listen with rapt attention, his words conjure a panorama pulsating with life and glowing with vivid hues before your eyes you soon become excited by his burst of eloquence melted by his pathos fired by his enthusiasm and elevated by his lofty sentiments you turn with an ejaculation of delight towards quencham and discover that a hideous aperture has taken the place of his mouth and unmistakable weariness looks out from its yawning depths. Abashed at your own state of delectation, 
you timidly ask what he thinks of the eminent speaker he shrugs his shoulder and tells you the man is fair enough as times go but there are no ciceros nowadays declares it is a bore that people talk so long and make so much noise wishes that the fellow would have done with his bombast and adds that he has a deal of manners and affectation while his gestures are entirely too violent it quite fatigues one to see them your ardor suddenly cools you begin to ask whether that which appeared to you a moment before as finished grace may not be mannerism and affectation whether those gestures are not too vehement whether that voice is too loud and whether there is not a touch of bombast in the discourse you have begun to criticize to question the grounds for your enjoyment the oration no longer carries you away you are half ashamed or afraid to recognize its beauties while you are sitting beside quincham next quincham accompanies you to the opera it is to hear a prima donna who has gathered laurels in both hemispheres and received the approving nod of crowned heads the applause of sceptred hands the opera represented is one of bellini's noblest inspirations you believe it is physically impossible that any one can be insensible to its soul-stirring strains ah you know little of the impervious texture of quincham's soul bellini is just as incomprehensible to him as is the riddle of the sphinx just as your heart gives an inward echo to the bravo that resounds on every side quincham coolly exclaims how absurd the idea of men and women shouting away in that mad style about what they are going to do or what they have done and talking to each other by bawling in that heathenish fashion there is certainly nothing more monstrous than an opera men poisoning themselves in singing stabbing themselves in singing going to battle or to execution singing eating drinking getting married or getting killed singing it's highly amusing but precious nonsense but you answer hesitatingly and beginning to perceive some element of the ludicrous in the performance which just now awakened your rapture but what a glorious voice madame blank has is it not perfect melody such power and sweetness combined don't you like her voice oh i dare say her voice is good enough it's not particularly disagreeable it's only so-so but there are no great singers nowadays startled by such a denouncing assertion you venture to remark perhaps you do not care for music perhaps you have no 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 ear no ear why i suppose i can hear all that din meaning a magnificent chorus as plainly as anybody else of course quincham has no ear 
None of the family of nil admiratium have musical ears or artistic eyes. If they had, they could not be scions of that pulseless race. Quinchum annihilates your prima donna as he extinguished your orator. Anon, you find yourself traveling with Quinchum. He is one of a party crossing the Blue Ridge of Virginia. The grandeur of that august chain of mountains strikes you with admiring awe. The picturesque and sublime are so wonderfully mingled that you almost hold your breath as you contemplate nature in this imposing robe of majesty. Quenchum sits back in the stagecoach, which is ascending the winding robe up the mountainside, glances out of the window to see what you are making such a fuss about, and remarks that it may all be very fine, but a level road would be far preferable. The coach would travel so much faster and get out of these tiresome mountains more quickly. You visit the natural bridge and Wire's marvelous cave and other noteworthy places. Quincham pronounces the bridge a tolerable specimen of nature's handiwork, but he don't think it remarkably high, nor by any means perfect in its form, nor indeed extraordinary in any way. The cave he pronounces a downright swindle, and can discover none of the beautiful sculpturing with which you're all enchanted. He cannot make out Solomon's throne with its oriental canopy, nor the falls of Niagara, nor the statue of Washington, nor the garden of paradise, and frigidly asserts that these subterranean wonders are the most unmitigated humbugs. Go where you will, it is all the same. Quincham yawns when everybody else admires. Quincham is weary when they are all enraptured. And just as their enthusiasm is roused to the highest pitch, Quincham is found to be asleep. But his unidealizing presence is felt by the whole party. His companions are half afraid or ashamed to praise the works of God himself, since Quincham finds so little to reverence and so much to censure in what God has achieved. Can such a man worship? Are not all his devotional feelings stifled by the heavy atmosphere of apathy that envelops his spirit? Paley tells us that the unconscious enjoyment of the mere sense of being is to his mind one of the most convincing proofs of God's goodness. Can God seem good to one who perceives nothing good, nothing enjoyable in his own existence or in the works of the Supreme Being? If men carry with them to the other world, as they surely must, the traits that compose their characters in this, Quincham's emotionless nature must be an eternal blasphemy, an everlasting curse. What would heaven be to such a man? Would he not find the supernal regions a very tiresome locality, the songs of the seraphs so-so? and the company of angels a complete nuisance. End of The Unadmiring by Anna Cora Mawat Ritchie Read by Kelly S. Taylor